Welcome to Hearth and Soul. I'm your host, Angela Torres Kukyun. I'm a foodie, food nerd, opera singer, and the food manager and preservation queen at Spoken, a cafe in the Ravenswood neighborhood of Chicago. I have extensive experience in food service, and I think I have this sort of passion that sits within me, and the more I learn, the more I want to share. And people started asking me questions, and the more questions I answered, the more I realized that maybe I should put it down for others that don't know me and can't ask me in person. Welcome to episode nine. Today we are going to get nerdy about one of my new idols, uh, Clementine Paddleford, who I'm sure you've never heard of, but you're about to learn all about her. Um, But first, a little bit of an update that uh, if we never told you before, this podcast is going to be sort of seasonal. So we have just a few more episodes in this season. Season one will end with, I think, 12 episodes total. We're on nine, so there's just a few left. So make sure you get them all in so you don't have to catch up once next season hits. And next season will probably hit sometime in maybe January after the holidays. Um, As a musician, there's a lot going on over the holidays as well as travel time for family stuff. And it's just a lot to try and juggle schedules. So that's going to be our little break. And season two will come back probably sometime in January. And that's the only update I have. And then I do want to get into a little bit of a wine report. I haven't done that in a while. Um, This is not about one of the naked wines. This is a wine that someone gave me. And if you're out there and you are the person that gave me this wine and I don't give you a shout out, it's because I don't remember who gave it to me. And I apologize profusely. Someone came to a dinner party and left this beautiful bottle of wine. It's a Chalet de Bonnet. I think I'm saying that right. Grand River Valley. And uh, I took it to my parents' house. It's a red. It's a blended red. So it's a table, like a table red wine. Um, And it was really, really good. Um, Not sweet, but not overly dry. So it was a little like, almost like a nice Malbec that's not super dry. I'm not a huge fan of the really, really dry like cabs or Merlots. And this was not that dry. This was really easy to drink, but still had a lot of nuance and a lot of body to it. And I don't even remember what we drank it with, but it was friggin' delicious. And my whole family agreed. And we drink a lot of wine as a family when we get together. So, and reds in particular are my mother and my sister's favorites. So, um, you know, we all have our favorites and, and wine is sort of like to each their own and if you like it great and if you don't that's cool too um but I do want to recommend this one it's a shallow de bon- chalet de bonnet grand river valley grandolina is what it's called um it says that it's estate grown which my father wanted me to make sure and make a really big deal about just because it sounds fancy I don't think he knows what that means but um you know he was like oh oh it's estate grown it's very special Anyway, so that is my wine shout out for our little wine corner, wine report, if you will. If you see it, give it a try. It's really nice. Um, We drank it real fast. So there's that. Um, Moving on. I have uh, one of our producers. Maureen is on with me today. Hello. Maureen is here because um, that way you guys don't have to listen to me wax poetic all by my lonesome and she can be a sounding board. Well, and plus, didn't you miss me? I did miss you. I mean, I miss you, even though you're you're always here with me. 
<laughs> I haven't. I haven't for the last few. That's true. I haven't That's for the last true. Few. You've been you've been working and such. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. <laughs> we're gonna get nerdy today. Um, we're gonna talk about Clementine Paddleford. So first, a little bit of why I want to talk about her. So I love a good museum. I mean, and I always go by myself, and here's why. Because I don't know anyone else that has the same stamina for museums that I do. Oh, what's you know like, what I mean? yeah, I do so, know what you mean. So, for example, because fir- I lack that stamina. Yeah, the first time I went to the British Museum years ago, I was with a whole bunch of other people, and we were there maybe two hours. To me, that's like a drop in the bucket. So I waited until all the other girls were out of town doing something else, and I went back by myself, and I spent eight hours straight. Oh, my God. And I still didn't see everything that I wanted to see. It's just it's just that my body ran out of steam after eight hours. It's just like, okay, it's time to go. Yeah. Um, the, the National Scottish Museum in Edinburgh, I spent eight hours there as well. So anyway, in, uh, in Michigan, there is this... Uh, and I'm sure some of you out there have heard of this, there is an sort of an open air village. It's a living history village called Greenfield Village, and it is attached to the Henry Ford Museum. Everyone who grows up in Michigan goes to the Henry Ford at some point with school, field trip, whatever, with their parents. Um, I'm pretty sure I went to the Henry Ford in like, I don't know, third grade. I don't really remember it. But the the Greenfield Village is my jam. Yeah. Like going and seeing how regular people lived like it's cool to go to the henry ford and see like the innovations that came about in certain time periods like that's cool but to me what's really cool is getting into the nitty-gritty of how actual people like us lived from Mm -hmm. day to day and that's what you can do in greenfield village so greenfield village is this like collection of by henry ford he was big into preserving history and so he collected all of these buildings and houses from all over the country you can see the the Wright Brothers bicycle shop is there. Um, uh, what's his name? Heinz, the Heinz ketchup guy. Oh, uh, I couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> Duncan Heinz. That was really yeah. no, really same guy. Because Duncan Heinz is the H I N E S guy. No, this was I'm and I'm totally botching the name. I had it, but anyway. His ha- the the Heinz ketchup the Heinz ketchup people. Hold on, I'm gonna look it up. Yes, please. <laughs> um, the guy that started that company, um, his house is there. So the f- and believe it or not, the first thing that that company ever made was not ketchup. It was H uh, J Heinz. That was his name. Oh. Um. As in Heinz fifty seven. Right, 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 right. So not Duncan Heinz, like not Duncan Heinz. mix. I'm confusing myself because Duncan Hines was somebody that sat down with Clementine Paddleford and had a meal. They knew each other. So that, which we'll get to. Um, Anyway, Greenfield Village. So all of these, you know, great things are there. And they also do cooking demonstrations. So they have like living history farms, uh, three of them that are set in different eras. So you can go there at certain times of the day and see them cooking as they would have been. And they use specific recipes. So I asked them, and this was a couple years. I, I mean, I go every year, but this was a couple years ago. I asked the girl, where, so where do you get these recipes to, to recreate these things that you are putting out on the table for people to see? 
and she said oh there's a book in the in the bookstore uh it used to be called something else but now it's called like buckeye cookery or something like that so i went into the bookstore and i said where is this book that they use on on the farm and they pointed it out to me and with this book there was a whole bunch of other cookbooks which is my happy place yeah exactly (laughs) so i'm looking through all these and some of them are just little like pamphlet like you know pie baking and whatever and i bought a couple of those too and i bought the buckeye one which is really fascinating but among those i found this really massive book that is called i have it here with me it's called the great american cookbook and at the top it has the name clementine paddleford i didn't know who that was it says 50 time tested recipes 500 500 wow sorry 500 time-tested recipes, favorite foods from every state. And I thought, well, that's kind of awesome. So I bought this book. And they gave me a discount because I bought so many books. <laughs> they did. They gave me a discount. And then they were like, oh, and did you know that since you've spent this much money, you can buy one of these fancy coffee mugs for like five bucks or something. And I was like, okay, cool. Oh, my god. So I used to have the, it, it broke. But anyway. As they do. Right. Did your cat so, knock it over? No, I knocked it over. Oh. I know of all things I can't even blame the cat <laughs> so so I bought this book and I took it back I was visiting my parents at the time I took it back and I sat down to look through it and I'm reading the foreword and as I'm reading the foreword I'm like I cannot believe that I never knew who Clementine Paddleford was because this woman is a freaking badass so and this is just from the foreword of the book like before I even got into any of the recipes so what I learned is that Clementine Paddleford was not actually a chef. She wasn't a cook, so to speak. Mm-hmm. She was a journalist, first and foremost. Awesome. She had a very long career um, writing for various publications. She wrote for Gourmet Magazine. She wrote for the... Now, I, I need to look because I don't want to get it wrong. The New York Herald Tribune. So that was the big paper newspaper in New York before the New York Times came about. Okay. New York Times then opened. They sort of overlapped time-wise and the Herald Tribune folded mm-hmm. and the New York Times kept going. So that there's that side of history for you. So she worked, I think she was the food editor for the Herald Tribune in New York for like 30 some years. Okay. So she wrote regularly for them and gourmet magazine and a couple of other publications and but she also wrote a number of books so i'm gonna let me give you a little wiki history if you will um so we're talking back in she was writing from the mid 30s until she died in the mid 60s so she was born just before the turn of the century in 1898 and she died in 1967 she was born in Kansas City, not Kansas City, in Kansas, um, and but she lived in New York most of her life, I think. So almost her entire life, she was a writer and, and a journalist. And she also, this is why I think she's such a badass. So she's the one that introduced people to global cuisine, if you will, right here in the United States. Okay. So... If you think about the 50s, there's a lot of like kitschy kinds of foods that we think about that are sort of iconic, you know, meatloaf, mashed potatoes, apple right. pie, whatever. And, and people think about the 50s and they assume that's what everybody ate. And and processed foods. 
that's when that started. Processed foods were a big thing starting in the 50s and into the 60s. Well, what she did was to look for what people were actually eating. So it wasn't just about like the fancy restaurants in New York or going to the Waldorf Astoria or whatever, which she did those things too for her various articles that she wrote. But when she wrote books, especially this this one, it had more to do with what actual people were eating, which is why I think she's so cool. So she wrote this among all of her books. She wrote this big book. The one that I have is actually a revised edition. So The Great American Cookbook is not her book. Right. She wrote a book called How America Eats that my understanding is was even bigger and had more stuff in it. That's wild. It's insane. Well, because, I mean, if you think of a cookbook with 500 recipes, which, you know, for reference, I would say that this book is about the thickness of a... um triple decker cheeseburger yeah yeah i mean it's like it's like a really big webster's dictionary yeah you know so 500 recipes um i can't imagine a much larger cookbook right perfectly and this yeah and this this one is the scaled down version so my understanding through my reading which i'm a little bit i'm a little bit disappointed in myself because i didn't realize how much there is out there about her which is funny considering no one really knows who she is. It's it's funny, isn't it? Like th- that there are the wealth of information about people that n- no one really knows about. Yeah. Like, for example, Johnny Mercer. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if I were to go up to any random so-and-so on the street and go, hey, what do you know about Johnny Mercer? And they'd Nothing. be like, who? They're at the um, at University of Georgia or something like that. Um, no, it's, it's, there's some college in Savannah that has his complete library and like, there's a whole, like they have a whole Johnny Mercer wing mm-hmm. of their college. Yeah. Which, what? Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. apparently because she went to, uh, Kansas State University and she was one of those people that saved every article she wrote every paper everything oh wow so they have all of it and it was kind of untouched until i think i read about 2001 where some funds became available for the library for people to come in and start going through it and organizing it so i mean thank god she saved everything or no one would know any of this stuff right but even then like i was how america eats was that published yeah it was published in uh, 1960 Oh, wow. But it took her from, I want to say, the she started it probably in the mid to late 40s to collect all these recipes. So she was, she she flew a plane, FYI. (laughs) Again, badass. (laughs) So She flew her own little plane because if you think about pre-highway systems, I mean, there were some, but it wasn't like it is now. Like trying to get into small regional areas of various states was... You can't just get on the highway and go there mm-hmm. or take a bus or a train, you know, like right where you could get to was a little more limited. So she would just take her plane, her little I think it was called a Piper Cub. I don't know what that means, but it's a plane. Sounds cute. It sounds cute, right? It's a little little <laughs> biplane. Um, so she would fly herself to these places to learn about this food. And she 
in order to do so, or not in order to do so, but because she did so, she was able to document what we now call regional cooking or regional cuisine. And Mm -hmm. that wasn't really a term then. Right. So if you're in New England and you eat clam chowder, you don't know what they're eating in Iowa. No. You don't have a clue. You assume everybody eats what you eat, right? Like that's that's just the assumption that's obviously going to be made. Yeah. And she was the one that through publishing her book, as well as all of the articles that she wrote for the Herald Tribune, made people aware of what was happening food-wise in other parts of the country. I'm so interested to hear what was going on food-wise in like... like southern california and like and specifically in like the 1940s and 50s yeah because i'm interested to know because i I, you know nowadays you know you look at like san diego you know Mm -hmm. los angeles and it's a lot of mexican inspired cuisine yes and i'm wondering like was that the case in the 1940s maybe maybe should we look yeah let's look because like oh look i flipped right to california hell yeah let's see so this uh, this particular book is divided into region, and then the regions are divided by state. Um, and that it, that took me a while because I immediately took the book and flipped to the end of the book to find to Wisconsin. find Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. I, and I did that too when I first got my hands on it. But she divides it. Well, they the the two people that compiled this divided it by region and then by state. So there is something from all fifty states in here. Um, but again, this is this is not everything that was in the original how america eats gotcha this is a compilation and this is also revised for modern cooks so keeping in mind that in in the 40s 50s and even the 60s the way people cooked at home is very different than the way people cook now so right by the time we got to the 60s um there was less knowledge in the kitchen but even then it was still which harkens a little bit to prepared foods Right. To make lives easier, which makes a lot of sense. But before that, things like simple things like writing in a recipe, preheat your oven. That yeah. wasn't there. Or, or you know, whip your egg whites until soft peaks form. Like that wouldn't have been a thing. It just would have been like whip your egg whites because you're going to fold them into this. That actually makes a lot of sense to me that like starting in 1960, that became less common knowledge because I know that when my mom was growing up, she grew up eating she grew up eating a lot of processed foods yeah because it was the new thing mm-hmm. and because of it she and her siblings all like deal with different digestive issues yeah because yeah. from early childhood she was eating like weird chemical filled things right and like they all have they've all had diverticulitis they've all it's yeah and, and it's it's coming back to bite us in the ass now absolutely but at the time it was you know women were rejoicing because suddenly they don't literally have to spend every waking moment in the kitchen well and it's liberating because and like yes they all have crippling digestive issues and it's terrible Mm -hmm. but it enabled my grandma like you know in the mid 70s she just kind of like she had she got divorced and then went back to school yeah and she had four kids at home, but because she was able to be like, cool, here's this much money. Go pick up frozen food. I'll be back 
Thursday yeah. once I'm done with my classes for right. a week. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that was that was a time period where, you know, women were trying to get into the workforce and, and have their own careers. Yeah. So it makes sense that why would you want to spend your entire day in the kitchen? You wouldn't right. unless your career was to cook. Right. You know, so it, there there are pros and cons. Um, but what's interesting is that this so this book is full of the kind of things that people cooked in their homes in various regions of the country. A lot of it is pre-processed food. Interesting. Which is really cool. That is um, that is really cool. So if we're looking at California. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um, well, let's, we're just going to look through the recipes. So there's broiled spiced chicken livers. Hmm. Which chicken livers were a very popular dish really in 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 the mid-century oh yeah um they're starting to get a little bit of a comeback although liver seems to still have that stigma of being like gross right Um, when i ate meat i liked liver liver is incredibly good for you yeah oh it's so good for you but it you know people are not used to eating like the bits if you will whereas then chicken livers were that was fancy food yeah that's what that's what pate is made out of right you know Oh, I love oh, I loved a pate. Mm. <laughs> I love a good pate. I mean, I still do. I just don't eat it. You just don't eat <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you like, can miss it. Yeah, exactly. And choose not to eat it. Precisely. Um, what else is in here? Mexican chicken with almonds, raisins, and oranges. All right. Oranges. Oranges. Yes. So that is some regional. Absolutely. Mm. I love. Is there something with avocado in it? No, not well. I'm not seeing yet. Let's see. We've got roasted halibut with onions and bacon. <laughs> Deluxe prune cake with mocha cream frosting. Interesting. Mocha as in with coffee or just chocolate? With coffee. Interesting. Powdered sugar, cocoa powder, butter, and hot coffee. I wonder if that it I wonder if that's Mexican influenced or if Possibly? that's just Possibly? Because oh man. Mexican coffee is having a moment in my life. (laughs) Mm. Uh, What else? Oh, there's some dressings in here. Thousand Island, Green Goddess. Oh, that's got to have some avocado in it. Oh, unless it doesn't. (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't. Interesting. It's got anchovies. Oh, man. Onion, parsley, tarragon, chives, tarragon vinegar, mayonnaise, and salt. Oh, mayonnaise. Yes, that sounds delicious. It does. Um, there's a little thing in here, a little blurb. So what's cool about this book is that it's got like her writing style was very sort of flourishy, mm-hmm. which is not the preferred way of writing in food journalism today. It's no, the way that she describes food is not what's used today or even even then it was a little much but because apparently she was such a strong-willed woman nobody messed with her writing you know she edited her own stuff but nobody was going to tell her this is too flowery language Yo, clementine lay off yeah no she did what she wanted (laughs) so there's a little blurb in here about uh that's called whatever the days catch supplies that talks about san francisco um Oh, San Francisco. See, I'm just sitting here thinking of Southern California. Yeah, this they don't have it uh, divided into. But the California section is huge. Like, 
Well, I would imagine. Oh my gosh. This, this is California. Oh man, that's so, like a couple centimeters. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, so I'm sure that it, it goes, you know, the various regions, but they don't necessarily have it divided in those regions. Um, but throughout this section, there are little, little blurbs. So one is called sweeter for a bit of the sour and it talks about citrus and there's recipes in here for things like salsa verde, um, chili, marinated squash sticks a spaghetti bake Mm. mid-harvest in the cling peach orchards it's another little blurb in here so i mean there's all kinds of stuff and we're only looking at california which is really interesting amazing but she i i appreciate the fact that with california being such a big state she didn't just like go to napa yeah yeah that makes sense to me yeah but that i find what is so interesting about this book is and i have barely scratched the surface of this book um is that it she went to she purposely went off the grid so to speak to small places Mm -hmm. and sat down for lunch and dinners with you know regular people like she she did all the things yeah she went where the food was that i think okay that statement i think speaks volumes because because the food the food is everywhere it's everywhere you know from hobos because there is a rich tradition of absolutely like vagabonds like cooking it's they have a whole culture so of course they're gonna have a cultural food yeah right it i mean it stands to reason but then like you know if it would be one thing if she was like no i'm just gonna see what the common people are eating and then like turn her nose up at high society but no like high society is where a lot of those traditions trickled down from from exactly exactly and so it you know they say here that she she coined the phrase regional cooking and she was a big proponent of farm to table before it was fashionable right you know which <laughs> it, honestly back in the 40s farm to table was normal food right that was everybody's food it wasn't until post processing happened that we started understanding that statement but she also i mean she documented immigrant cooking which i think is really important to remember for like a white lady that's a big deal that's a big deal and a white lady who technically she was not she was in in kind of high society she was you know rubbing elbows with the queen of england like yeah people knew at the time people knew who she was she had a regular article in the herald tribune she had regular articles in gourmet magazine she was the food person people knew who she was you know so for her to take that and use it as a way to showcase the american table is not made up of there is no one american food The American table is made up of immigrant foods and how important that is. And to me right now, in our climate right now, that is so important to remember. You know, people who say American is apple pie. I'm sorry, apple pie is not American. No. It has has roots in in French cooking. So that's not a statement you can make, right? Right. Hamburgers are not American. No. Hot dogs are not American. Like, we have to be honest with ourselves that all of these things were brought here. Unless you are a First Nations person. Right. Your food 
comes from immigrants. Like right. that's just how it is. And yes, a lot of it was tailored for the ingredients that could be grown in this on this land. Yeah. But it's it's super to me it's super important to highlight just how influential immigrant cooking is to what we know now as American food. And that was something that she obviously felt was really important because most of this book is that kind of food. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And it that to me really, when I first started talking to my mom about her, you know, my mom did a little bit of research as well. And that was the first thing that stood out to her as well. Like, look at how much she highlighted the contributions of immigrants to the American table. And I was like, you mean like most of it? Yeah. <laughs> like most of the American table. Well, so what I found so interesting was so, of course, immediately I, when, when Angela came in, I took the book and, and looked <laughs> up what, what was going on in Wisconsin. And most of it is German and Polish, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. It's not, and I, I think that, I, I think it's likely that that's, going to be a common theme because in the 1940s german and polish folks were the immigrants yep they were at least in the midwest they were absolutely absolutely i mean a lot of the standard fare if you will comes from germans the polish the czechs you know in iowa there's a lot of czechs especially around cedar rapids where the national czech and slovak museum is interesting um that's where I grew up, so that's why I know that. <laughs> but that I, I, one of my friends used to, she was the Czech princess in the parade for a number of years in a row. So, oh, wow. and now one of her daughters is, which is really cool. Um, oh, that is cool. But yeah, like so, a lot of the foods that that we think of as just being, you know, this is just stuff that people eat. It's just, just this is Iowa food, right? Yeah. Well, this stems from, you know, a Czech influence or a german influence pretty much my dad's stepdad was german Mm -hmm. um and so he grew up um eating a lot of german food and when we moved to wisconsin when he moved to wisconsin rather i was born in wisconsin Mm -hmm. um he got such a kick uh out of all the access to german food he had yeah because he didn't have that same access in chicago i mean he before moving to wisconsin he my mom lived in oak park which, you know, 1980s Oak Park wasn't exactly the bedrock of cultural cuisine. <laughs> it was it was a lot of like 1980s, like yuppie food. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of wedge salads and stuff like that. Oh, Lord. Yeah. But like, <laughs> you know, moving, you know, moving up to the Milwaukee area, it's, you know, I the on Saturdays, me and my dad would go to the German grocery store and get Knockwurst. And, nice. And like it was to me, it was just like, oh, that's Saturday. That's, that's what, what we you do. do on Saturdays. Yeah. You yeah. go to the German market and and you cobble together some German to the to the to Hans working behind the <laughs> behind the counter and. You know, you ask him like, "Oh, die beste Nachwurst heute," and "Oh, diese Nachwurst," and Aww. and yeah. So it's just like, I, yeah. the The immigrant story is so alive in in uh, in each region's food, and I think it's awesome that she's highlighting that. Well, what I love too, there's a a little quote in here I want to read really quick. So there was an introduction. Well, there's a foreword and then there's an introduction written by Kelly Alexander. Um, And at one point, Kelly says, uh, 
She understood that food was a way to talk about class and religion and culture and politics and, well, life in general. Food was her medium. Telling stories was her passion. So I think this is another reason that I sort of gravitate towards her because as a singer, I'm also a storyteller, but I'm a cook, right? So I'm not a journalist. I don't write stories about food. I cook the food, but... Well, you're kind of a journalist now. I guess I am. Yeah. Wow, look at that. Okay. <laughs> look what happened. More in common with her than I thought. <laughs> but I mean... Get a, you just got to get a plane. I just got to get a plane <laughs> and then get rid of my fear of heights. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, she just... She understood food in a way that I think that we have forgotten. And I think that's what that's what draws me to her. And what angers me a little bit is that... So when the New York Times came about, they had, let me see if I can find it because I don't want to forget his name, Uh, Mr. Claiborne. So Mr. Claiborne was writing about food at the same time as Clementine Paddleford, um, but he wrote for the New York Times. Okay. So when the Herald Tribune folded, her newspaper career basically ended. But his kept going because the New York Times kept going. So there was a lot of stuff that he wrote about that people attribute to him. Okay. When really she wrote about it first. So that's something that, you know, it bothers me a little bit that that people know the work of Craig Claiborne from the pages of the New York Times. And no one knows about Clementine Paddleford. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this amazing badass woman and nobody knows who she is food people don't know who she is unless you are a food historian right you know um but a lot of people know about craig claiborne yeah because it it says somewhere in here um okay so for example this is uh from the foreword by molly o'neill molly writes but I also took note of the regional specialties like San Francisco Chopino and Lobster Newburgh from Maine, Kentucky Burgoo, New Orleans Gumbo, and the vinegary barbecue from South Carolina, a dish that I had thought was first introduced to a national audience by Craig Claiborne in the pages of the New York Times. Only after I'd reassured myself of the obvious superiority of my own venture, because uh, Molly was also a, a food journalist... Did I inhale sharply? Miss Paddleford had been writing about food for more than 30 years when Mr. Claiborne joined the staff of the New York Times. Oh, my God. Right? So (sighs) she'd already done the thing. Yeah. You know, and did it really well. But because her newspaper folded and his kept going. Yeah. He was able to continue and things like, you know, he's credited with introducing barbecue sauce to the masses when... It wasn't him. No. You know what I mean? So that that bothers me quite a bit because there's just so much to her work. Apparently, she wrote seven other books. Of course she did. Right? Are you surprised? <laughs> Not at all. No. So she writes this huge tome that took her years and years and over 800,000 miles traveled mm-hmm. to write. But then she also wrote seven other books, not all about food, plus her regular publications in the Herald Tribune for 30 years weekly she wrote in there week sometimes twice a week and her contributions to gourmet magazine this is an incredible person like 
holy crap. And a person who like had, oh, she was a single mom, by the way. So she had been married for one year, mm-hmm. got divorced, but had a child. Okay. Um, I think actually, if I remember my reading correctly, the child was not from the marriage. It was a foster child that she then adopted. Okay. But still, she was a single mom. Yeah. She was a single mom who had survived a bout of throat cancer and had to speak through a voice box that she kept concealed in her throat underneath a a velvet ribbon. Like, wow. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, all of that stuff put together is what sort of attracted me to learning more about her. And I'm not, I feel like I have barely, barely touched the tip of the iceberg. Oh, no. Of all of this stuff. Like, apparently she wrote about dinner with Charles Dickens. Not that she had dinner with Charles Dickens, because that would, would have been impossible. Right. But she wrote about that kind of food, which is kind of my Christmas jam. Like, that is what yeah. I do at Christmas time. So now I'm like, well, I got to go find that book. Right. And I got to read that book. Um, But let's look in here at some of these regions. All right. Let's find the Midwest. So here's a fun game. Yeah. Uh, We pick a region... We guess what kind of food is going to be in that region. Ooh, that's good. And we see what is actually in that region. Do we want to guess what's in Illinois? Because I just turned to it. Okay. So my guess... I'm not looking at it, though, yet. I okay. promise. I'm my... just looking. I, or I just turned to it, but I'm not looking at it. So when I was slipping through earlier, I saw one of the recipes. I, like, digested... One. One of the, one of the me- recipes is is on the forefront of my mind. So I won't I won't say that one. Okay. Um... But when I saw it, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> um, I have a feeling it's going to be a lot of like, I have a feeling there's going to be a fair amount of corn. Yeah. Um, probably some like, probably like some homemade bread, mm-hmm. some beef centric recipes. Some Likely. Polish recipes. Considering Chicago was sort of the meat packing industry of the Midwest. Yeah. I would, I would assume a good amount of beef. I imagine some Polish influence. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe some Irish. Okay. Maybe like yeah. some stews. Stews, I can definitely see that. You know, yeah. like working man's food. I mean. Yeah. that stick to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the, especially in the 40s, south side of Chicago was Irish. My mm-hmm. grandma grew up on the south side of Chicago. Okay. Um, and her mom was an Irish immigrant. Oh, good. And it was all, it was, she grew up in Oak Lawn. Okay. Um, and it was all Irish folks. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So that should be an influence that we find. So, yeah. Potatoes. Yeah. Probably. Oh, that's probably, I, mean, I bet there, there might be a shepherd's pie recipe in there. Probably. Yeah. Well, let's, let's look. Yeah, let's take, let's take let's a look. See. Oops. I think it's the first recipe that I digested. It's like a wild rice one. Oop, I'm not at the beginning of Illinois. Hang on. Illinois. Aha, yes. Wild yeah. rice stuffing. That doesn't surprise me at all. No. Although I usually I usually associate wild rice with the Dakotas. I, I don't know why. Oh. It may be that, that that's because my grandmother, so my grandparents used to do a lot of traveling and they would go out west every year. And she would always come, sometimes they would travel up. And then, like, through the Dakotas and then back down around the lake into Michigan. Um, or they would go up into Mackinac and come down that way. Oh, I love Mackinac. And she would always bring us wild rice. So the reason I am not surprised by wild rice mm-hmm. is because wild rice is a fixture at 
um my family's easter celebration really we usually have some kind of wild rice dish because my aunt makes it and my aunt's family has lived in illinois forever like the western western illinois wow okay cool um, and so when i was like oh that makes a lot of sense that uh, there you go i didn't know any of that um this recipe looks delicious though i'll have to try it sometime yeah, wild rice stuffing i'm about that i love stuff i mean i love wild rice and yeah. stuffing how could yeah. you go wrong you really can't what else is in here um mom's jam surprise rolls okay okay sounds like that might be a christmas recipe i'm just looking there's a little blurb before here that's um is that a turkey silhouette? that is that is a turkey silhouette these these rolls are hungarian oh interesting yeah so there's a there's a little blurb sometimes um they put these little blurbs before recipes that have to do with where the recipe came from okay so in this particular one um is the turkey in reference to the wild rice stuffing i think so yeah okay that makes more sense oh yeah because they have you stuffing it into a turkey oh yeah like literal stuffing i'm gonna send that recipe to my mom yeah that sounds really good it sounds delicious um yeah so these rolls are uh a christmas thing yum hungarian mom's jam surprise rolls yeah about that kugel apparently um the woman makes an apricot jam for the filling of those rolls oh my god potato kugel this is also has a blurb before it that says in albany park a north chicago suburb what i learned of an unusual luncheon club that had started 34 years ago and was still being continued 12 friends of the sisterhood of the beth israel temple decided to meet each thursday to talk to trade recipes to sew to undertake small money raising projects all were good cooks, each prideful to show her skill, and each took a turn in preparing the luncheon. Albany Park, that's where I live. Isn't that crazy? That is wild. And it, it's a potato kugel recipe. So we write about potato, but we not about write... the origin. Right, right. Um, gefilte fish is in here. Okay. Horseradish beet sauce. It looks like these are all from that luncheon. Horseradish, though, for some reason, also does not surprise me. Yeah. Because... Um, um, I grew up eating beef sandwiches with, with horseradish. horseradish. Classic combo. Yeah. Apple upside down cake. Yum. Christmas stuff. Christmas stuff. Um, I am not going to begin to try and pronounce this. Oh, gosh. It looks like a cookie. Little chocolate drops. It's a German. Oh, can I try? Yes, please. <clears throat> Um, chocolata plätzchen. Yep, that sounds Pl- right. Yeah, so Platz mm-hmm. is um place. Oh, uh, okay. So plätzchen is like little little pl- blobs. Little blobs. <laughs> that makes sense. Little yeah. chocolate drops. Um, Mrs. Stevenson's date stuffed oatmeal cookies. Oh, Stevenson. I wonder if that's Swedish. Probably. That would not surprise there's, me. There's another uh, blurb before these uh, cookie recipes called Cooking Up Christmas. Well, there's a really intense, um, at least in our neighborhood, there's a really intense uh, Swedish tradition around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part, you know, we do live in Andersonville. And, right. And um, the three 
Swedish Lutheran churches are within a mile of us and they they have like they have a really strong relationship with each other and Mm -hmm. so they do a lot of like a lot of activities around this neighborhood right okay and so they do it like a um I'm forgetting the 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 saint but like early December they do like a saint saint Lucia yes yeah yeah Yeah, saint Lucia okay um parade well, this says, um, this little blurb that I'm just uh, really quickly looking over, it looks like uh, this was, these recipes, these cookie recipes are from a, th- a visit to a woman who lived in Rogers Park. Okay. Um, she had sent Clementine a three-page letter inviting her. Oh, my gosh. To the house of, oh, to the house of Norvin Vaughn. So not to her own home, but to this this man's home to meet his wife Adele who apparently was a wizard in the kitchen and she was German so these are of German descent okay anyway Rogers Park area German descent but that's where these cookies came from interesting so there's a um yeah date stuffed oatmeal cookies and then cinnamon stars which I have made before aha and a blurb of stick to your ribs soups I knew there was gonna be some stick to your ribs shit there had to be (laughs) A queen among the soup makers is Mrs. Cornelius Staub from Lyle, Illinois. The stars in her repertoire are not those delicate brews famed chefs prepare for prepare to prelude fine dinners. Mrs. Staub makes stick to your ribs soups. Breathing reassurance, loaded with liquid richness, a meal in a bowl. See, she's very flowery. I really like but it. But I though. love it. It's really it's um it it makes it uh, it, it makes it more fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're talking about hearty soups. Right. Which, I mean, they're not always pretty. No. But, like, like it, but there's know, something, it, yeah. It makes me it makes me miss hearty soups, the way she yes. writes about hearty yes. soups. And I have found that other things that I read th- as I go through the book is that it always makes me want whatever it is that she's talking about. You know, it's, like, a really good... She was very successful yes. in her writing. And it's like a really good celebrity chef makes you want to cook whatever it is they're cooking. Yeah. Just by the way they talk about it. Yeah. Not necessarily by the way you you see it, mm-hmm. but by it, because you can't smell it either. If you're watching it on television, you can't smell it if it's in a book. Right. But if the words are right, then you want it. Yeah. Like now I want to go home and make stew, even though I have a fridge full of stuff. But <laughs> Mrs. Staub was apparently uh, from Amsterdam. Cool. So there are now soups in here, like Dutch-style white bean soup. Lamb and barley. Lamb and barley. I wonder if that's Irish. It probably has Irish influence. Yeah. I mean, I would think. Yeah. And then we get to Iowa. Iowa. All right. So not as much Polish as I thought. Yeah. In fact, none. None. That's fascinating. Like, it looks like she did a lot of, uh, she stuck around Chicago, which still, like, you would expect to see some polish food but yeah. i i don't know maybe it maybe just had to do with the people that she knew Possibly. perhaps perhaps in the sections that were cut out of this per- particular edition there's more polish recipes yeah i don't know it's just but that's the thing is as i thumb through the book i don't see what i expect to see always yeah well that could be partially the time it absolutely absolutely because be. these are so this book was compiled when 
I think she was working on this book, if I remember correctly, from the late 1940s all the way through for about 10 years. Because it was published in 1960. Okay. So, but she took a good like eight to 10 years to do all of this. So immigrant populations were different Mm -hmm. in the 1940s and 50s. Right. Um, I do know that like Irish and German makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, Hungarian also weirdly doesn't surprise me. Yeah, me neither. Like, I guess, you know, in kind of the same family. Yeah. As, yeah. as, um, Pol- Polish, although I do recognize that Hungary and Poland are, are different, are very different. different. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. The, language alone. Hungarian. So, oh my God. is so fun fact. Yes. There are three languages that are similar to each other in that they are unlike any other language. And those languages are Korean, Hungarian, and Finnish. Wow. And they kind of group those three languages together. Okay. In that they are singular. That makes sense. Yeah. Because my brother studied abroad in Finland for six months when Mm -hmm. he was in high school. And... um. People kept telling him, and at the time we had a Norwegian exchange student, and for a little bit, we for like a couple of weeks we had a, a Danish student staying with us. Okay, and we were like, "Oh, Patrick's going to Finland, you know? That's right, you know? That's right by Denmark and Norway." Yeah. and they were like, "It's not, yo, like that it. language is impossible. Like, I can't <laughs> even wrap my head around it. I hear it, I hear it occasionally, and I have absolutely no idea what they're saying." Wow. But like, Norwegians and um swedes and danes like they can like a dane and a norwegian person could have a conversation in each other's respective Mm -hmm. languages and and figure it out right right but if someone from finland were to start speaking in finnish to someone from norway they wouldn't have they would have no idea wow that's crazy hungry is the same way the same way interesting so i wonder if she she was pulled into like pockets depending on who because it looks like people would write to her. You know, like I said, she was very popular. You know, she was she yeah. was a literary giant, so to speak. Like, this was in the... Remember, this was in the day where everybody had newspapers every day. Everybody read the newspaper every day. And if you're picking up your Sunday paper and every single Sunday you're reading an article by Clementine Paddleford, you're going to know who she is. You know, like, Dear Abby was... Right. Right? It's that kind of... I'm wondering if the lack of attention in, like, southern Illinois and, like, western Illinois has to do with the fact that there wasn't much culture going on there. Possibly. Yeah. And that they were probably... Because I know that, you know, for instance, southern Illinois in that time was deeply, deeply, like, industrial. Mm -hmm. Like, and... Just like making ends meet, and yeah, figuring it out, and right, um, and then there was a big economic depression around the fifties, sixties, okay, um, where a lot of industry left, mm. um, and so I'm I'm wondering if that's why they didn't really care so much about what was happening with Clementine. That's Battleford. possible. That's very possible. <laughs> they were too busy trying to just figure make it, out. it by, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're if you're in an, an area that's having that hard of a time, you're yeah. not you're not looking at 
Clementine Paddleford to help you plan your meals for the week. You know yeah, what I mean? No. Like you're not that housewife who's going to pick up the newspaper to, to read that every week. No. So that makes a lot of sense because it does look like a lot of these start with, you know, so-and-so wrote me a letter and invited me here or yeah. I showed up in this town and this person invited me here. Um, she isn't in, in people's homes, not so much restaurants. So these would have to be people that knew who she was yeah. and were inviting her specifically to come eat with them. So That's really interesting. Yeah. That's a fascinating way to learn. And, and I know that you mentioned that, you know, that she would sit down with the pharmacist and, you know, whoever. And, and yeah, the regular people. Yeah, but like... I, for some reason, I didn't make the connection that she would literally go into these people's homes. Yeah. Well, like this other one was uh, the cookie recipes. What did I say? Was. Um... Yeah. So Norvin H. Vaughn of Chicago Rogers Park area wrote me a three page letter inviting me to his house to meet wife Adele, a wizard in the kitchen, and especially so with the Christmas sweets. So, like, somebody writes you a letter and says, oh, my God, you got to come to the state. To You got to come to Chicago. You got to come to my house. You got to meet my wife. You got to eat her cookies. Like, Well, and probably what happened is that then Adele was like, oh, well, you've got to go to this person. And then exactly. that person was like, you got to go, go to this, this person. person. And then she was right. like, ooh, I'm all Illinois out. Yeah. And now I got to move on. Yeah. Right. That wouldn't surprise me. Not at all. Not at all. And if you're if you're that popular and you're that, you know a public figure you're going to get a lot of those letters probably yeah and then you're going to get a lot of recommendations the rogers park to albany park thing does not surprise me like that mm, that yeah. traverse that absolutely the the lyle illinois though is not anywhere near yeah i wonder where is it lyle? Say? i don't even know i'm gonna look at i'm gonna look up where lyle is because i may have been misrepresenting um outside of chicago Lyle. I'm looking through this little blurb to see if it says anything about how she got there. Oh, is it L-I-S-L-E? Yes. Did I say it right? Yes, you okay. did. Uh, you know, that is straight up a Chicago suburb. Okay. Well, that's why. Yeah, it's um, it's west of Oak Park. It's by like Downers Grove and like Wheaton. Oh, and okay. Bolingbrook. Okay. It's, oh, it's like right by Naperville. Yeah. So like in the Chicago metro area. Mm-hmm. That makes sense then. Yeah. Like there's probably a Metra stop in Lyle. Oh, yeah. Okay. That would make sense then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and it doesn't say here how she came to Lyle, how she heard about Mrs. Cornelia's Staub and her world famous soups. It doesn't say. It just says that she was there. Yeah. And she went to Mrs. Staub's house and they, you know, they showed her their huge table that she inherited from her family home in Amsterdam even though it seats six and there's only two of them and wow like so she's in these people's houses yeah literally sitting down and having a meal with them and then she documents the meals yeah which is completely fascinating that is fascinating um do we want to do we want to do a shot in the dark for one more state yeah which state do you want to do? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Let's so we did Illinois. We did Illinois. Should we do something that neither one of us, like, knows anything about? Knows anything about? I think that that would be... I, I would have fun doing that, personally. <laughs> okay, then pick a state. You pick a state. Um, how about... So obviously not Iowa and not Michigan. Not Wisconsin. Not Wisconsin. Not Maryland. Not New York. How about... 
Maine or Wyoming? Oh, let's do Wyoming. Okay. Okay. What would we expect in Wyoming? I'm expecting a lot of game. A lot of okay. like okay. a lot of like buffalo. Buffalo, that would make sense. I wouldn't be surprised if there was another wild rice. Yeah. Or something yeah. of that ilk, some barley. Barley. Wyoming, Wyoming. I mean, would you think about like any kind of like cattle? Would there be like, like beef? Buffalo? Buffalo, that kind of thing. So maybe roasts and I'm I'm imagining again some stews. Stews with beans. Um I wonder what what it what if any immigrant populations were in Wyoming? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I'm wondering if there would be any First Nation inspired recipes that in Wyoming. Is, that is possible. Because especially in the 40s and 50s. I'm trying to see That would I not surprise me at all. Find a, a way to get to it without flipping through for the right <laughs> section. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think there is. It's not New England. might just have to flip through just give us a moment aha here we go okay it took me a second because she lumped it in with colorado weirdly which is weird but the top of the page says mountain air appetites oh (laughs) you know i have you know as we were discussing earlier i have absolutely no idea the deal with wyoming Uh, not a clue is it so it's mountainous i i guess (laughs) I mean, I assume not all of it is mountainous. Right. But it has mountains there. Yeah. I'm yet again pulling out a map (laughs) just because I want to see, and I'm specifically doing Google Maps because I want to see what the terrain looks like. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, it, it's like a place where like, I don't know, there's probably, there's some mountains, there's some plains, there's some. I imagine that Western Wyoming is. Oh, it's where Yellowstone is. Oh, duh. So, um, okay, now in Wyoming, stupid. there's mountain. It's it is um, f- largely flat in the. Um, it's largely flat in like the northeastern part. Okay. Um, where it connects with like Montana and South Dakota and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the further west you go, that's when you start to get into like the Rockies. Gotcha. Okay. And like Yellowstone Park is in there. Um, a lot of, um, oh, there's a huge Indian reservation. Wind River Reservation. Oh, so maybe there will be some yeah. indigenous recipes. That would be really cool. Yeah. Let's see here. What do they... So it starts out with buttered leeks. Buttered leeks, which sounds, I mean, I love leeks and Me I too. love butter. So Me too. I don't see why this could be a bad thing. I know. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to read really quick the, the sort of intro to this section. It says Wyoming and Colorado. This is the main road through Grand Teton National Park, two miles from Jenny Lake, Wyoming. Turn the car left into a bumpy woodland. Cross a low plank bridge with a rumble-like thunder and into a bright meadow of sweet, dry smells. Honk the horn. Here we are at the vacation home of Mr. and Mrs. Harold Fabian, a place of two cabins within shouting distance. One is for living and sleeping, one for cooking and eating. 
and a cottage to accommodate friends from the world over a few thousand in a decade by guest book count. So she's just chilling at somebody's vacation home. Okay. Essentially. So, near Grand Teton National Park. Is that... Okay. I hope that there's more. Because that's a little disappointing. Yeah. Apparently, Harold Fabian is from Salt Lake City. Or is a lawyer in Salt Lake City. Okay. Or I should say, was. Um, the lawyer for uh, John D. Rockefeller, actually. in oh. the In the 20s. All right. So, I mean, go you. She rub noses with all kinds. <laughs> okay, so she tagged along with Mrs. Fabian to the kitchen dining cabin. The dinner was roast ribs of beef with horseradish sauce. Okay. Beef and horseradish. Whip a half pint of cream, fold in one fourth cup of prepared horseradish. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. That does not sound terrible. No. There was a spinach rice ring filled with buttered baby beets as the main dish accompaniment. Okay. So I will say that back in the day, people loved molds, food molds. Mm. Not just like for jello. Yeah. No. But like for, I mean, all, everything was molded. Yeah. Um, Salmon mousse was a very popular item back in the 1800s, and it was always molded into something pretty, right? So food molds. So think about taking, like, a bunt pan and packing it full of this, like, spinach rice concoction and then unmolding it and filling the middle with beets. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, presentation was a little different than what we're used to. Right. Um, this is very different than I expected. It, yeah. Well, I guess they also had hot biscuits okay. and a green salad. Mm -hmm. And for dessert, they had sherry almond pudding with a pompadour of whipped cream. All right. <laughs> so probably not overly representative of what was actually, actually going on in going Wyoming. On in Wyoming. <laughs> um, Just what some rich Utah folk apparently who yeah. spent a fair amount of time in New York were doing. Yeah. So cool. we do have buttered leeks and uh, and then it moves into Colorado stuff, it looks like. So not a lot on Wyoming. So that is a little bit disappointing. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, we tried. We tried. But, you know, I mean, again, this is not her complete book. Yeah. This oh. is the revised edition. Oh. So it's... It's entirely possible that she met more people in Wyoming and found more recipes in Wyoming. I mean, maybe she stayed on somebody's cattle ranch or hiked a mountain or I don't know. I mean, she was pretty badass. So yeah. it could have been any number of things. Maybe she did go to the reservation and meet some indigenous people. Possibly. And have a great meal. And it just, for whatever reason. Didn't, didn't make it into the book. Molly and Kelly, who compiled this book, did not put it in here for whatever you Get know. us together, Molly and Kelly. I mean, come on. I know Molly was a little jealous because she came across Clementine Paddleford in the late 70s when she was doing similar work, thinking that she was doing something groundbreaking oh. and then finding that Clementine Paddleford had already done it. And then she was kind of like, well, shit. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, she completed her work anyway. And, yeah. she, you know, she's she's a she's a food journalist in her own right. Um, and then, you know, was able to 
clearly revere Clementine Paddleford enough to put this book out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not. This is not how America eats. This is a revised edition. So yeah. I don't. I don't know. You know, maybe someday I'll get lucky and be able to find in an antique store like an actual copy of How America Eats, which would be incredible. I wonder if some archive somewhere. Maybe. Maybe like some, that would be, you know, that that would, that's counting on like someone digitizing. Right. Now I book. do, I do know that the, like I said, the um, Kansas State University has a whole, all her stuff, all her papers, all her notes, all her whatevers. Um because she saved everything and mm-hmm. they have it there. Um, I don't know if it's completely archived. I did try to click on a link to see some of it and it wasn't unavailable. So, excuse me, I'm not ins- entirely sure why, if they're still cataloging it or if they're moving it. But it's out there somewhere. And this Molly person who, this Molly O'Neill who helped put this book together, came across who Clementine Paddleford was because she found how America eats in, in an antique store or a secondhand bookstore. She just found it. Oh, now granted this was back in the seventies, but she found it and was thumbing through it and then read it to, and figured out who this amazing woman was because she was on her own journey. If that makes sense. So she also, her copy was signed by the author. So I'm kind of like, man, I wish that was me. Um, but yeah, so if if this is of interest to, oh my gosh, you found it. On Amazon. On Amazon? What? It's a used copy. I thought Amazon. it wasn't in print anymore. Well, it's a used copy. It's a used copy. In acceptable condition. Okay. It's like $32. Uh, you should I might, get it. I might have to get a hold of that. Do you want me to send you a link to it? Yes, please. <laughs> And then you'll have to follow up with us on uh, uh, what's yeah, in, uh, what's what how it's different from this revised edition. I want to know what they eat in Wyoming. Damn it! I know, right? <laughs> we got to find out. We have to find out. Um, yeah. So I think you know if this kind of stuff is interesting to you and you want to know more, you can definitely you can Google Clementine Paddleford because, like I said, she wrote a bunch of other books. Um. She's got one about Duncan Hines or that she wrote with Duncan Hines. Um, She's got a book about uh, a French restaurant or a restaurant from the French Quarter of New Orleans that was there for it's called Antoine's um, that was there for apparently a century. Um, She's got How America Eats. She's got a cookbook for the young, which is like a pocketbook. Mm hmm. Um, American Food Writing, which was uh, published posthumously, which is an anthology with classic recipes edited by Molly O'Neill. So Molly O'Neill clearly became quite obsessed. Yeah. Which I get. Um, (laughs) But she's also got a book, like I said, she's got a book called A Dickens Christmas Dinner and that was published in 1933. And how I did not know that was out there, considering my obsession with creating dinners based on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't know how... I didn't know that was there, but I'm going to find it. Um, but you can Google Clementine Paddleford. There is a there is a Wikipedia page, but there's a bunch of other stuff out there about her. You can click on links to... Um, there is a an article that was put in the New York Times that is now digitized that you can read that's interesting. Um, she was fascinating, and I just... Uh, 
I can't believe that more people don't know who she is and that she's not revered these days. You know, well now they will. Now they will know. So yeah, that's <laughs> she's my new idol. I think, or at least one of them. Hell yeah! This giant book. So lastly, um, we've talked a lot about food because that's what we do here. But what's in your pie hole, Maureen? So, Angela, you actually know what's in my pie hole, and that is Caesar's house. <laughs> so I put a fa- <laughs> I put up a Facebook status. I was at work and I was very tired and hungry, and um, I put up a Facebook status saying, "Can someone just come and make me a Caesar salad?" <laughs> and um, update: No one did. <laughs> Um, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, but it, it sparked a conversation. Angela commented saying like, you, you probably mean a vegan one, right? Right. Because that sounds like a pretty tall order. And I wove the tale of, I actually did not go fully into detail about this on Facebook because it's a little embarrassing, but I, I will go into detail here. I was at that same job. I was, I was sitting at a front desk and I really wanted a Caesar salad. And there's one place in Chicago that does it that I really like. Uh-huh. It's called Veggie Grill. Okay. It is a it is a uh, vegan fast food place that just opened. It started in California and it opened in Chicago. Wow. Um, it's really good. <laughs> um, nice. But they have a vegan Caesar salad with like coconut bacon and... Um, like croutons and vegan parm and Caesar dressing and romaine and it's really good. and I, I always get it with um, seitan chicken mm. uh, it's very good but it is $14 yeah which is a hefty price tag for a salad um, but I was really jonesing for it and I had just gotten paid and so I was like I'm gonna order it on Grubhub or DoorDash yes. And guess what the final price tag was? Was it like twenty five dollars? Twenty three. Yeah, for a salad. A salad. Because once you add the delivery fee and, and the, the tips and, and the, the tip and the yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. I I ate a twenty three dollar Caesar salad. I mean, I I've been known to do such things. But, Although um, usually, if I pay twenty three dollars for a salad, it's got like a big old slab of like wild caught salmon on it or something. This did not. No. <laughs> do they at least like make their own seitan? Yes. Okay. Well, that's something. Yeah. That's something. It's a you know high quality protein sort of. It's really <laughs> the shade. Sorry. <laughs> the shade. I mean, it's a wheat. It's a wheat-based thing. It's yeah. so it's it does have protein, but it's not like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah. So that's what's the other thing that's been in my pie hole is, um, as I mentioned earlier, Mexican coffees. Mm, yes. Um, there is this amazing right now. They I think they have it at Metric right now. Um, a Oaxacan coffee. Ooh. And um. What Metric does with Oaxacan coffees is witchcraft. <laughs> it is so good. Like, it's um, it's tangy, mm-hmm. but smooth. 
Like with tangy coffees, sometimes you'll get that kind of smack, like in In, kind of like in the corner of the back of your jaw. Yeah. Yeah. This does not have that. And then it has kind of a fudgy finish. It's so good. We have it on um, the cafe I work at. We have it on pour over. Nice. We do it on V60. So the the filter's a little bit thinner. So you get kind of some of those. Um, the 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 body of it stays more intact than mm-hmm. if we were to do it in Chemex with that thick filter. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like fudgy and tangy and smooth. It's super drinkable. Nice. It's really good. Yeah, so that's what's in my pie hole. Overpriced, overpriced vegan Caesar salads and Oaxacan coffee. coffee. <laughs> well, mine is um I also have two things. I have a this tea that I'm drinking right now, which is a it's one of the Rishi organic teas that Is it turmeric? This is the turmeric chai. Yep. It's so good. It's so good. It's like it's like chai but not overly powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's just a tea. So it's not like, for those of you that are not aware, most places, and I'm going to say most, not all, because a lot of small businesses don't do this, but most places that you get like a chai latte, it's a concentrate. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a sugary subst- like syrup that they're adding to your milk to give you a chai latte. Mm-hmm. Well, we make our own chai, um, actual tea, but we also have this turmeric chai tea. So it's just in a, a loose leaf tea that we put in in little bags. And it's got like coconut and turmeric and cinnamon and all kinds of deliciousness and ginger. And it's just I I put a little bit of honey and a little bit of oat milk in it. And it's just so good. It's so the nuttiness of the oat milk is just like. Can you drink oat milk? I can drink oat milk. At least I can drink the Oatly brand because they use certified gluten free oats nice something about it i have found if i drink like a whole latte it upsets my stomach and i'm thinking it has to do with the fact that they have to thick in order to make it steamable they have to thicken it with oil they use canola oil right they use canola oil and i think because i don't eat a lot of that my body's like what are you doing yeah so when i drink a whole latte it's not so great but i can put it in this tea and it's perfect i use it i use oatly specifically as half and half Mm, mm-hmm. um, I put it in my shift drink at work is um, we have a drink on menu called a Sousa mm-hmm. um, that one of the baristas came up with. Um, it's called a Sousa. It's S-U-S-A. And it, it stands for short Americano because on our cups for an Americano, we write USA. Uh, yes. So short Americano. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my drink is a Sousa that I fill the rest of the way up with cold oat milk. Mm. so it's just like eight ounces of water with like three ounces of oat milk or something like that and it's so it's so creamy and no sugar added yeah which is nice which is a feat that's really nice i really wish they would pick a different fat but i mean it it works for a lot of people and i think that's really great and it's an it's a good alternative to soy milk yeah for people who can't have soy milk so um and since and almond it's milk for the environment right because almond milk is really not good for the environment especially no. after the droughts they've had in california where the no. almonds are grown so oat milk is it's a um really great alternative so i am drinking this tea with oat milk in it and then um i've been because i make steel cut oats in my instant pot um i've been playing with a pumpkin oatmeal so i made a batch uh, where I put steel cut oats and water and coconut oil and some butter and then 
dried cranberries and pumpkin seeds. And then I put cinnamon, cinnamon, cardamom, turmeric, uh, allspice, and mace. Mace is like a slightly milder nutmeg for those who don't know. I just... Uh, and then I stirred in pumpkin after it was cooked. Oh, God, yum. I just... It's really good. I just saw a, uh, um, a video about mace where somebody was... Uh, followed a, an ice cream recipe from like the 19 uh, maybe like 1890s mm-hmm. where it wasn't churned it was just sat in ice interesting so it had an icier c- consistency yeah but she tried out two flavors that were rec- that were recommended mm-hmm. one was orange blossom mm-hmm. and um the other one was mace yep and it was just like at first, she didn't taste, like, anything. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the longer the the leaves stayed in there, mm-hmm. the stronger it got. But, yeah, it's... I'm... For some reason, that's, like, the third reference to mace I've heard <laughs> in, like, the past it four was, days. It was a very popular spice back in the day. Yeah. So, I have a lot of, like, cookbooks from, like, the 1700s and the 1800s. They use mace a lot. And I think it's because it it harkens back to like, well, so nutmeg, nutmeg is the nut, right? Right. And the mace is the outside of that nut and the leaves. Mm -hmm. So the nutmeg is just one part. And why would you strip away something that you could still had still had flavor to it and discard it when you could use it? So a lot of my Christmas recipes, like the mincemeat pie filling that I make and stuff like that calls for mace. So I can buy it at Spice House and then I have it like all year round because you only use a little bit, right? Spice House. So I put mace in this oatmeal with cardamom because also I bought it Christmas time. I don't always recommend keeping your spices around that long, but you know, I'd rather use it than throw it away. Right. But all of this stuff in this oatmeal and then I stirred in just pumpkin puree. I did put a little bit of brown sugar in it as well, only because I was out of maple syrup. I would have preferred that, but I didn't have any. So I used brown sugar and it just, I ma- it made enough that I've been eating on it all week. And so it's like in the morning when it's fall and it's cold outside and you don't want to leave your house, but you have to leave your house. There's nothing like really good, like pumpkin-y, spicy. It just, yeah, it's been hitting the spot. So that is what's in my pie hole. Nice. Yes. Cool. And I think that's it for today. That's it for today. For more content, check out hearthandsoulblog.com, Hearth and Soul Blog on Instagram, and Hearth and Soul on Facebook. And if you like what you heard today, please go to iTunes or Google Play or Radio Public and subscribe, rate, and review. Please review. That's how we get out to all the other people who may not have stumbled upon us yet. Hearth and Soul is produced by Scopy Magazine. Head over to scopymag.com to check out literally all the things, podcasts, articles, videos, and more to come. And thanks for listening.